So, the question is, uh, which way the future of the world lies? Is it in the eastern way of Atma Sayyam? Or in the western way of materialistic expansion? Let me put it like that. Or vital hedonism, uh, freedom. On one side there is a vital freedom. I won't use the word freedom, unqualified. Because what we practice is not freedom, but a kind of vital freedom. Where a man is, gets a fair amount of play of the untrampled vital freedom. Not fully untrampled, but trampled by law and to an extent reason. And Eastern cultures were more based on Atma Sayyam. Self-discipline, self-mastery. Um, in future, the future is leading us towards unification. It cannot be completely Eastern or completely Western. But before that, let us understand the basic difference between the two. The Western culture is oriented outward towards the surface, towards life, body and to an extent mind in its heydays of philosophy. So these are the three fields. We can use the word field of nature. That's why a typical, I'm, I'm, when I use the word typical, it doesn't mean everybody. It means uh, if you asked what is God, one would say nature. And there is no need to bring in God. God is a superfluous entity. By nature you can explain everything. So that tendency of Western thought is to explain everything on the basis of nature. Make a very careful and assiduous study of nature. And see how life can be made fruitful, uh, if not meaningful. Just by studying and mastering the outward material nature. This is the way of the best. And... Uh, what do you do with this life? Well, that is left to the choice of an individual. So an individual has the freedom to lead his life the way he wants, provided he doesn't trample upon somebody, puts his feet on somebody else's toe. As long as he doesn't do that, it's okay. And for that, there is law. What the individual does in his private life, let's take an example. If a person drinks alcohol, it's his choice. As long as he doesn't create a drunken brawl or drives in a drunkard way and creates a problem, it's perfectly fine. Uh, whereas in Indian thought, uh, I'm talking of days before the acculturation took place. The fact that somebody is taking alcohol was actually regarded as not a very good thing. Uh, I still remember as I was growing up, uh, somebody taking alcohol, cigarettes. So if somebody had cigarettes, cigarettes culture had just started entering India. So if somebody saw an elderly person coming, it had to be thrown or, you know, put aside. So there were many funny stories about it. Uh, so basically it was on self-disciplining yourself. Now in its origin, this self-discipline and self-mastery was needed because the Indic culture and Eastern culture in general was turned towards the spirit and the self, not toward the outward view of things. And nobody in this world can ever imagine touching something called as the true self, the divine, the spirit, without self-discipline and self-culture, some degree of self-mastery. It is just impossible, whatever practices one may do. So the stress was on basically preparing the social matrix through self-discipline and self-mastery, so that those who are ready for the next level can do so. And for that, because an individual was, if you leave an individual just to himself, 
he may or may not be able or capable of doing it so there was a lot of social pressure and religious pressure on individual life which was to be governed by the social and religious norms there was a lot of pressure on that so um to avoid an unbridled expression of the vital impulse in man but the vital is there it was there then it's still there so the problem with that life was that people found ways and means and routes of bypassing the law wherever there is a law you learn how to bypass the law that's what law teaches you uh, so as long as it was an inner self discipline as in the great ages of satyuga and subsequently it was perfectly fine but subsequently when this self discipline started to be imposed by social and religious pressures there was a tendency to find ways and means of uh, bypassing it and yet keep a very nice uh, image outwardly which bred to hypocrisy and falsehood so this had to be destroyed so it it has been destroyed uh, with regard to the west i mean because this led to one kind of bankruptcy even when, when you turn too much towards the spirit you forget the organic way with which life develops the mind must develop by questioning even questioning authority and the body must develop you know you pay attention to it so an excessive movement in that direction led to a outward bankruptcy this about the east in the west there was the whole face was turned outward and you know so it developed materially vitally even till today you see all the development of the west is not so much in thought but in terms of making your outward life more and more luxurious more and more comfort seeking there is tremendous comfort things are at a you know push button i remember first time when i came to know that you know over a email you can book your tickets so i was used to standing in queues and booking the tickets and email itself was a big thing so i thought some new kind of mail what is this specie the email some internets but now it is the in thing you know it so things started coming because the world started moving towards a unity and then in the western context because there was so much of stress on outer comfort and vital pleasures and enjoyment there was another kind of bankruptcy it was the bankruptcy of the spirit thought began to dwindle you see it's it's uh, um so strange when i read some of these things that you know people still debate about creationism versus evolution people still talk about religion versus secular not realizing that all these things can be seen and understood uh, on a single continuum of the spiritual evolution but that led to another kind of bankruptcy the world towards which we are moving both must bring their assets you cannot have a world which is purely oriented in the with the unbridled freedom of the western world nor a world which is impoverished of your outer life because spirit seeks fullness and not annulment and whereas you have the riches of the spirit but of no good outside so world is moving towards a state of unification between the east and the west and that's why there is a frequent contact between the two cultures it started somewhere in the middle of the you know what we call as in fact even little before christ when message of the east went to the west through christ it went through even islamic invasion 
led to a kind of an eastern message moving towards the west and vice versa through you know greek invasions british invasions so it was nature's attempt to break the boundary walls in which there was strict confinement and through this acculturation new things began to develop the old patterns got broken so what is going to be the future is not something of the east something of the west eastern thought as the background and support because without the self and the spirit we are nothing and western thought which stresses on one side on individual freedom and growth which is needed on the other hand towards uh, you know fullness of life towards regarding even this idea of human god dwells in human beyond that you leave it but at least in human so this humanism this aspect which came it was there in the east but in the extreme stretching of thought toward the vacant infinite it got lost so that must be also picked up both have to be brought together and this what shirbindo says um, very beautifully in one of his bangla writing several places he has uh, written about this east and west the main difference between our country and europe is this our life is turned inward europe's outward it's very evident we judge of good and evil etc from the point of motive if you see all the things it is about dharma so arjuna is doing dharma karna is not doing dharma now it's very baffling to the modern mind modern mind will say all killing is bad how, how do you justify arjuna's killing and say karna is doing dharma because killing is bad okay you bring in nowadays the motive has scripted into law but yet there was a time when it was the act knowing god as one who dwells within europe judges it on the basis of action done that's why in europe there is a great stress on action a kind of victorian morality your action should be nice should look it should look very nice whereas in uh, asia it was on the it was not moral but again the spirit which was within it and that we see in the story of uh, dushyant and shakuntala the very name of india there are two versions of it one of them is shakuntala's son who is illegitimate and yet india is not only accepted but the name of india is bharat one story is that is after the legendary king bharat so if you look at it why was it right because well uh, it was dharma it was born out of love and that love was eventually acknowledged but if you see the western world it's the action it's illegitimate so it leads to another kind of life knowing god as one who dwells within and who knows all that passes in our minds we seek him in the soul europe looks upon him as the king of the world and seeks and worship him in the world outside mother said it was very difficult to even for me and even for shurbindo because he had received a thoroughly christian education to understand that this too is divine so always god is out there unfortunately we have adopted these things you know like recently somebody asked a question god may created everybody equal so how come you are speaking of aryan and anaryan this is a typical western thought superimposed upon the indian mindset because god did not create to start with he became and in the process of becoming evolutionary hierarchies are created it's part of the creation you can't help it you can't say that you know dinosaurs and 
uh, other beasts are all the same. So same within human beings. There is an evolutionary hierarchy. And that's why we have the principle of rebirth about evolution. The heaven of Europe is in the material world. Worldly riches, beauty, luxury are welcome and to be sought after. If they imagine any other heaven, that too is a reflection of these riches, beauty and luxury. Their God is akin to Arindra who rules the world empire, sitting like an earthly monarch on a bejewel throne, swollen by the hymns and prayers of a thousand flatterers. <laughs> Shiva means no word. Our Shiva is the supreme among gods. Yet he is but a beggar, out of his senses, uncaring and forgetful. Our Krishna is a youth, fond of laughter, fun and love. So we have these two gods. <laughs> the god of Europe never laughs or plays, since his majesty is hurt by these activities. When in the western context, Europe, somebody asked, I am forgetting which country, they asked for a photograph of Shurbindo. So, the disciples took that, you know, different photograph. They said, no, they won't like it. You send that photograph where Shubindo's that ascetic face, where he is looking serious, he's just coming out of asceticism. That is what they appreciate in terms of divinity. God who crucifies himself, who God who suffers for everybody. But Krishna is very difficult for the Western mind to comprehend as a God. Because how can you be youthful, playful, and yet be God. It is in his nature to be playful, Krishna. The God of Europe never laughs or plays. That's why many people in Shurabindu would even start seeing that. Because otherwise they can't believe he is God. He must be serious. Actually, and people even superimpose their idea of God onto him. Even stern judge. You know, mother will not like it. You know, mother will like it. And mother so many times explained to people... Don't carry this conception of the divine. And yet this conception which God borrowed from elsewhere. Our Shiva is a beggar but to the spiritual... Achha, okay, um, there is something which I missed. His Godhead suffers in Europe. The extrovert attitude is at the back of it. Signs of wealth are for them the support of splendor. They cannot see a thing unless they see the sign. They have no divine, no subtle vision. Everything is material. So this is what has happened. The day at both as it is called. That's why you see something very interesting happen. Uh, most of us regard, when you look at countries which are successful and you automatically begin to follow it and that applies to DSM and other criteria. So we follow whatever norms come from West, America and UK primarily or Europe. So Why? Because they are materially successful countries. So we have this impression that if somebody is materially successful, therefore the person is also intelligent, therefore the person has power of thought. It is not true at all. It may just be the reverse. Because all your thought is just based on a material vision of things. But it is blindly accepted. Our Shiva is a beggar, but to the spiritual seeker he easily gives away all the wealth and wisdom of the three worlds. He is generous to a fault, but the wisdom beyond the reach of the wise is his inborn position. Our loving gay Krishna is the hero of the Kurukshetra, father of the worlds, friend and companion of the universe. India's immense knowledge and subtle vision 
unfettered divine vision pierces through the material veils and brings out the inner attitude the true truth the inner and subtle principles so even this idea about atma sayama we must understand some asuras are extremely sayami shurbindo speaks about it that the asura some asuras are very religious and you see the subtle the actual example of ravana so india never went by these this all modern idea especially with regard to this ultimate uh, you know movement towards nirvana but in india there was need of balance of tyag sayama meant that and yes not an unbridled and free expression of the vital but it was not a mental discipline that india imposed but the discipline of the spirit and towards a greater motive but when we discipline the vital by the mind then you have a different kind of a civilization altogether you see i mean the soldiers in the second world war were extremely disciplined and regimented the mind had so much power there vital that they had no feelings when they could kill but that's not the kind of discipline that we speak about it's atma sayama not man sayama it's also important to understand because many of us have started practicing man sayama which is a different thing altogether it's a atma sayama for the joy of the spirit for the sake of the spirit the same order is observed about good and evil we look at the inner attitude there may lurk holy feeling behind an activity that we condemn and we have those stories shri ramakrishna recounted about a drunkard and a person seemingly pious man and at 6 pm both parted ways friends for the day for the night rather so one went to the drinking bar and the other went to a prayer hall this shri ramakrishna story and as it happens both died and the man who went to the bar was given a place in heaven and the man who went to the temple was given a place in hell and when he was asked why so he said while you were in the holy place you were thinking my friend is so lucky he doesn't have all these moral mental restraints like me so he can enjoy life i wish i could be like him whereas the man who was there was thinking what a miser miserable wretch i am i wish i was like my man and my friend and had some very beautiful godward turning so that is noted by in india that is valued much more than outer action it's a unfortunate thing that we have completely taken that model and started applying it here but that's not how indian thought was that's why it's very difficult to understand many indian stories i have several times recounted them especially of the avatar shri krishna the way he married rukmini and the way he made krishna marry subhadra is something which can scandalize human thought but he did so why did he do so yet he is god something with us within us understand that the real truth is of motive just as behind the outwardly good or sanctimonious conduct may lie hidden the self seeking of a scoundrel every day you may go to a religious place and worship yet you may be a scoundrel asking for all the outer things good and evil joy and sorrow are subjective factors the outer activities but a veil 
We know this, though for the sake of the social order, we respect outward good and evil as evidence of the activity. But the inner attitude is what we really cherish. The renunciant sannyasin who behaves like inert, mad fiend, jadon mat pishachvat. That's how it is described by Shankaracharya. That the man who has realized God, you can't judge him by his behavior. He may act like a Jad Bharat. Inert. Not moving at all. And people may say, what kind of a fellow this is? Completely indifferent. Or he may become Balvat. Like a child. Or he may become Unmatvat. Like a madman. Or even Pishachvat. Like a Gaul. Throwing stones. Hurling even abuses. You see, when you read some of these uh, reminiscences of these uh, great masters, I'm not going to name them, but it is just, we cannot imagine. Of course, Shubhinder said, this is not for our yoga because even outward must be transformed. But this transformation was not some kind of a only mental polishing and outer control. It had to be transformed. But there have been yogis like that. But India still revered them as yogi. Dera Baba would kick a person, sometimes even pick a stone and throw at the person. And uh, he was not, uh, you know, Anandamayima. If a person from the West went there, he was not allowed to come near her. He or she could have her darshan only from a distance. From, you know, beyond a certain pillar. I am saying somebody who actually have seen her. He couldn't just come and have a nearby and have a darshan because simply it's very simple. It doesn't deserve. Just imagine, because it was not based on anything outward, but the ways he saw or perceived things. So this was our. But if you were to judge her action based on our external rules of conduct, you will find it strange. As beyond rules and conventions, duty or otherwise, beyond good or any will. Such a one who has risen above laws, we call the supreme person. The western intellect is unable to accept such a principle. He who behaves as inert, it treats him as inert. He who behaves as if he is mad, it treats him as off his head. He who behaves like a fiend, it treats him as a disgusting, lawless devil. For it has no subtle vision and is unable to look at the inner attitude of truth. And I think some of the movies that came in the 60s, post-supramental manifestation, indicated this shift in attitude where the West began to look at the inner motive. One such movie which was one of my favourites very uh, in 70s I had seen it some of you may have seen Dirty Harry seen the movie of The Man Outwardly. In India its counterpart much later came like Khal Nayak <laughs> but he is a man who is condemned people find him disgusting but the man carries within him something very beautiful so, this is the shift which began to take place that it's not your outer being but the inner motives, inner impulsion that has to be seen. Bound to this outward view of things, European scholars say that at no time was there democracy in India. In the Sanskrit language, words to describe democracy are not found. Those days, there were no legislative bodies like the modern parliament. We too on our part have been content to accept as valid this western view. In our Aryan rule, there was no lack of democracy. Its external instruments were no doubt insufficient, but the democratic attitude permeated the core of society. First, every village was run entirely on democratic lines. That was, was meant by Panchayat. 
Who were these five people? Nobody has ever asked. Who were the five people? Panchayat. So you had the, it seems, I am told, that four people from the four Varnas. And there was one who was the head. So it was a Panchayat. So you had the Panchayati Raj. Grassroot democracy existed. You didn't have to go through High Court and Supreme Court. Within the village, because people knew the context of an event. They were not just carried away by, you know, going to court and then all the witness papers and all the hostile witnesses. So, this is how the democracy was a grassroot democracy. The rural democracy was kept intact during Mughal rule. It vanished only the other day under the operation of the British government. Secondly, even in the small principalities where there existed conditions favorable to a convention of the masses, this custom was in force. So, this is how Shubindu first describes the basic difference. And then he says, the unification of the East and the West is the religion of today. We have to integrate both. We cannot afford to ignore the message of the East. If we do it, it's at total peril. That there is the self and the spirit which is the foundation of things. That only the East can give that message. It's equipped to give that message. But equally if we ignore the Western message that life, body, mind, even your most outer life has to be respected. If we ignore it, then there will be no self-fulfillment of the spirit. And only we will have another period of impoverishment. But in this task of unification, if we consider the West as the foundation or the chief support, we shall be making a grievous error. The East is the foundation, the chief support. The outer world is established in the inner, not vice versa. So by all means, have a wonderful, opulent outer life. But like Videh, King Janak, that is our ideal of the Jeevan Mukta. Ravana also has an opulent outer life, but it's at the expense of the soul. This is the basic thing that we have to understand. So, Atma Sanyama is of two types. One is where it, again the Sanyas Pravarti, to reject the outer. Sri Krishna himself has declared that is not the path of mankind's progress. And another Atma Sanyama is where you are moving in the objects and yet you are inwardly a master. You have it, you take it, You take the rasa and if you don't have it, if it goes away, you are not craving for it. This is the kind of Atma Sayyama and that too not for its own sake, but for the sake of the fulfillment of the spirit which demands that these members of our life, instruments of nature must be subordinated to something higher and greater. That's why this disciplining is needed. Otherwise it has no meaning. The outer world, respect and emotion or inner attitude are the source of energy and activity. One has to be faithful to one's true attitude and sense of reverence, but one is not to be attached to the application of force and the external forms and means of activities. The Occidentals are busy with the outward forms and means of democracy, but the external form is only for the purpose of expressing the inner attitude. So, for example, if we say that we must touch every elder's feet and if we give importance only to this external form then we are committing a mistake it is the inner bhava which must flow 
So what really is worthy of being respected? It is, is it really dependent on each? Or is it dependent on something much deeper? Is Ravana to be respected, Bhishma to be respected just because he is the grand sire? No. Truth, Dharma is to be respected. So this was the truth of Indian culture. Many of us believe that these outer activities, respect the elders, give, you know, uh, parents their due respect. This was not the essence of Indian culture. Indian, in Indian culture, you see quite the contrary. The basis of Indian culture was Dharma in the highest sense of the word. Dharma was not about something external. Dharma was always something inner. You should be faithful to the truth and the calling within you. And that was important. The Occidentals are so attached to the forms and instruments that they are unable to notice that in their external expressions the inner attitude and reverence are languishing. These days in the Eastern countries the inner attitude and respect for democracy are becoming fast clearer and creating external means. So this of course um, is speaking of in context of the um, Indian Revolution, this writing, this writing belongs to 1907-1908. But yet, the essence is there that external derives its truth from the internal. And I'll give one example. So, you have so much emphasis on external uh, manners, habits. Even there are books on how to behave, manners. So, when you get down from the car, I remember in Air Force, um, I had to pick up one very senior officer as whatever, like I'm supposed to attend upon him. So I went to pick up. So I didn't know that which side of the car I'm supposed to sit. And I sat coolly. <laughs> just Later on, he remarked to my senior that, you know, he doesn't know this basic discipline. And the worst was when there was a luncheon, when uh, my senior medical officer, so I was supposed to look after him. Very nice, part of culture, but look at the uh, strangeness of the whole thing. How we have borrowed a system and misapplied it. So I got everything arranged for him in his room and then he said, uh, what about my drinks? Now I never thought about drinks. I okay, okay, okay. So I went, got drinks and I didn't ask which drinks, so I got two, three bottles randomly. Anyways, after that, he, he was very nicely, courteously said, why don't you sit and have with me? I said, no, I have to go home because my wife would be waiting for me for lunch. Now, this was my culture, but this was again taken as a minus point. He just left me alone and went away. This is not done. Now, this is the externality. You open the, and I give this example that you go to a five-star hotel. And this is an aped culture. This is not original Indian so you open the door and you know somebody off, open enters in a you know Mercedes or Chevrolet or whatever and limousine and you see a man dressed in all nice suit and by the side a lady dressed in all branded clothes, nice perfume and see how the man will open the door and salute you. What is he seeing? He may be actually treating a scoundrel inside his. But another person from the village seemingly uncouth comes wearing a dhoti. <laughs> he may be an erudite scholar, but he will not be respected. So this was another incident which I can share. My father from, you know, since he retired, he used to love wearing lungi. 
lot of indians are wearing lungi in south it is a craze so when he came to stay with me in the mess i was told uh, you know your father wears a lungi if you can tell him i said i won't tell my father this on my culture if you have a problem i'll take a room outside but i don't tell my father that he should not wear a lungi and what's wrong with it <laughs> so <laughs> again they gave up on me okay fine <laughs> better not to argue but that's the difference between culture but they will be very nice and courteous you wear a pant and come down oh you are his father so nice nice to meet you that's that's where we pay attention to the externalities and miss the inner truth so the time has come and the two must come together and in this synthesis the east must take the lead but without ignoring that there is a message of the west which is as much true about giving importance to the outer life giving importance to growth of the physical vital of course mind has been meeting point in both cultures and to the mind its development everything it should be well equipped to receive the influx of the spirit and express it so the future of the world lies in a beautiful synthesis of the two while we concentrate on the spiritual life it should not be impoverishing the outer life it should not be by uh, this attitude that how does it matter why should i know about science and art and history and geography because i have to eventually find the spirit sometime back when i had just come here someone told me that so and so yogi told him your goal is to find the divine why do you want to study history and he said i felt very nice so i left it all and came here he said i wish you had studied history you could have been a much better instrument in the service of the mother so this is the attitude we have to adopt spirit first and foremost but also the mind life body heart everything and even the most external nature should be refined but refined in the ways of the spirit and not the way of the west where Uh, it's more like something which is convenient like hi and bye rather than namaste of course we should not make too much of a namaste like you know making it appear <laughs> again or the kind of <laughs> show and facade it should come from within indic cultures are moving from within outward that is the hallmark of india and not from outside within western culture is judging the inside from the outside indian culture judges the outside from the inside inside must develop must be the basis but outside should not be neglected and also develop this is the essence towards which world will move and at the end shirobinda says something very interesting at one place you know if you go through an international travels you will see they show this day and night cycle so if you are flying over the over europe and it's night there so you will see this cycle it's night but you also see india mein day ho raha hai no it's such a great fun to see acha india mein abhi yahan par and then you see slowly the sun is shifting so you, actually this is true of um, uh, the life of the world and shubhendu says that there was a time when the day was shining upon europe and the night was upon the west but now it is shifted so you see that europe is slowly but it's inevitably and very clear plunging towards a night 
confused about how to act based on whatever they had built, the democratic systems, ideals. They don't know what is to be done with all this because it's creating more and more confusion. Whereas the East and Asia is rising. That's what Shubhendra says also. So the Asian way of life must be the backbone and the background. The Western way of life must be the efflorescence of the truths that the East has discovered and is yet to discover and give to man.